understanding the Christmas story. And I, and I would argue you can't really understand the Christmas story and you can't feel much gratitude uh, for the Christmas story. You can't have the proper response to the Christmas story unless you understand what it means that Jesus came so that we could be saved from our sins. Now, as I say that, even as the words come out of my mouth, I'm painfully aware that sin is a word that is increasingly foreign within our culture, right? When is the last time you heard someone outside of a church or Christian or Bible study context talk about something being sinful or someone being a sinner? I bet you I can guess. When they were commenting on a dessert item. (laughs) Most prominent place I can see and I can find where the language of something being sinful comes up fairly regularly is when we're using it as an adjective to describe something that is both delicious and calorically dense. (laughs) Right? Something is sinfully delicious. And of course, even here, that word isn't taken seriously or in any kind of a negative way. It's used with kind of a wink and a nod. It's It's a playful synonym that means something that is really, really good tastes really, really good, but is actually really, really bad for you. And in speaking to someone of maybe a generation before me, certainly two generations above me, sin would not have always been used in this kind of very playful way. It was once something that Christians took very seriously. They battled against it. They rejected it. They sought to um, expose it, allow God to expose it in their life, and then to flee from it. But as our culture shifts to a more individualistic view of truth and therefore a very individualistic view of what it means to be wrong or to be in error, it's actually become pretty difficult to talk about sin with any kind of weight or personal significance. Because after all, I mean, what's, what's sinful for you just might be liberating to me. I mean, that's your truth. That might not be my truth. In our climate today, the word sin has dropped out of our vocabulary. It's seen as unnecessarily judgmental, maybe even a cue that the person using it is a tad religiously fanatical and uptight. Or we roll our eyes at someone being labeled a sinner or having committed a sin because if we're honest, we maybe think, That's a bit of an overreaction. No serious person with cultural import should use it. I think that's kind of the baseline that our culture expects in reference to this idea of sin. But with that as kind of the baseline, it is very difficult to enter into the promise and hope of Christmas. And if, as a society we grow increasingly more casual in our dismissal, minimization, sidelining of sin out in the world, within the church here. The promise and message of Christmas is just going to increasingly seem odd and irrelevant to our lives. 
Now, of course, I would argue Christmas is anything but irrelevant. When we understand what sin is and its effects and its consequences in this life and the life to come, then Christmas comes into view as something stunningly beautiful and glorious. But it's difficult to get to the glory of Christmas if you leapfrog or have a very murky, thin, superficial, minimized, and maybe even childish understanding of what sin is. So let's talk about sin and why it's a big deal. Now, if I were to have you fill in this sentence twice, sin is blank, I want you to think about how you would fill in that blank. And then I'd want you to um, pick someone who's not a, a believer and anticipate how you think they would fill in that blank. Sin is what? How, wh- what is your kind of one sentence summation of what sin is? And I want you to hold that and I want you to compare it to how you might anticipate other people answering that who have little or no interest in scripture or following God. Now, I think it's likely that if you were to press most people for an answer who aren't a believer and say, yeah, yeah, I get it, sinful desserts and stuff. But I mean, like, seriously, like, do you think there's any value to a word like that? You might get them to agree to the fact that labeling something that's really bad as a sin, that can kind of pass, right? Murder or rape or extortion, human trafficking, those are things that maybe as a collective society we might say, yeah, that is, we're calling that sin. But I would anticipate the reason why people are calling that a sin is because of its damaging effects to other people. And that's what makes it so bad. So really bad deeds that have very negative consequences for other people, that we might feel comfortable saying, that that's a sin. That's serious, serious wrongdoing. But again, I would imagine that God isn't part of the equation for why that is a sin. To maybe family and friends and people in the community, what would make something a sin is its negative effects on other people. And yet, as you're going to find out, that actually isn't a primary reason why something is labeled sinful in the Bible. Something sinfulness is always in connection, first and foremost, to God and how it reflects on God and how it interferes with our ability to properly live before God. Now, the Bible does present sin as something pretty sophisticated and malicious and I've tended to, uh, even pastorally, sometimes forget the multifaceted nature of sin and I tend to gravitate to a particular image or word that scripture uses, but in the Old and New Testament, sin is described in all kinds of ways And that's really, really instructive because it shows us that we're not dealing with something that can just be reduced to something simplistic like doing something really bad. In the Old Testament, there's a number of words that are used. You you have them uh, in your outline. Hata means to miss the mark or to fail. It means to fail to live up to what God has called us to do, who God has called us to be, to miss the mark. You take arrow and aim at something. You miss the target. A bar means to pass beyond, to transgress. When God says here but no further, we say, thanks for the suggestion. I'm going to transgress that line. A wand means iniquity or perversion where we take something that God intended for good and we pervert it to our own evil ends. It can mean revolt. 
It can mean simply to err or to go astray intentionally, to walk away and wander from God. It can be, mean to be wicked and impious, to live with an intentional willfulness and defiance and kind of like living with your middle finger raised to God. In the New Testament, hamartia means disobedience, and that's exactly what it means. It means disobeying and, and neglecting what God has called us to do. It can, it's also another synonym is evil. It's injustice or unrighteousness. That gets introduced a lot in the um, story of Israel when they become a nation, that we learn that sin isn't just the individual ways that I fail to honor God, but the ways that as a collective society, we fail to reflect God's glory and to bring that glory into ways that bless the neighbors and communities we're a part of. Lawlessness, the sense of having, being, um, refusing to live under a law or under any kind of authority. I'll decide what's right in my own eyes. And I think what I'd want you to see this morning and what I want you to see in the context of Christmas is that sin in its totality, a simple way that I would define it is it's just a refusal of human beings to live the life intended for them by God. And the Bible says there are many different creative ways humans do that. And it uses different words and different images and different language to describe that, but at its heart, sin is a refusal of humans to live the life God intended them. And that word sin is important because there's a difference between sin and sins, right? The Bible talks about sin as a condition, sometimes even a very personalized power that holds human beings and binds their will. And then there are sins that are manifestations of the power of sin at work in our life. So when I steal, that is a sin. That's a particular sin. But it's a manifestation of a deeper problem within me that my heart, that the very core of my will is corrupted and it's bent towards evil. And if that language sounds very over the top for you or, or um, too much of an exaggeration, sounds too negative, then by all means, for the next 12 days of Christmas, just don't sin. Just decide not to do it. Just will it in yourself. And don't, and don't, even, don't even shoot for the moon in terms of like any sin. Just pick two or three. And just say, I'm just going to choose not to do these things. And you will discover very quickly, as C.S. Lewis said, that sin cannot be um, contained or reformed from your own well-intended, even sincere, even noble efforts. Because sin isn't just the bad things that we do, the uh, horrible tearing down things that we can say. It's a manifestation, it's a power at work within us that holds us back and holds us down from who we're created to be. As a condition, sin is an enslaving power that leads to sins. And the core of sin is this refusal, this, what the Bible calls unbelief. Unbelief isn't just like, oh, I'm not sure what I believe about stuff. Unbelief is like I'm deciding against believing in God. It's a willful desire to reject or ignore God and the effect is always some expression of an unwillingness to open ourselves up to God's love and an unwillingness to open ourselves up for the ways that our neighbors need us to show up for them in love and in grace and in truth. 
The Bible says that these sinful acts have their origin in the heart. And yet, even when we do things that are destructive towards other people, one of the interesting things is that God says it's as if you've done it to him. When David betrays uh, Bathsheba's husband, has him killed, manipulates a whole bunch of circumstances through his political power so that he can take uh, Bathsheba, and then he's confronted by the prophet Nathaniel. In, in Psalm 51, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which is strange to us because you're like, no, it's not only against God that you sinned, David. You sinned against this couple and against Israel and against everybody who had their, put their trust in you. And you, like, but definitely to Bathsheba and her husband. But what, what David is saying is he's recognizing that all sin is ultimately aimed at refusing to live the way God wanted. So yes, when I lie to someone, I'm hurting them, I'm damaging our relationship, but I'm also damaging and sending a signal to God that I'm refusing to live and reflect God's truthfulness into the world. And I'm partnering with the powers of deception. The Bible says that sin is universal. It's not something. So while not every particular sin is universal, we all don't murder. We all don't extort. Sin as a condition is universal. And it's not something that we can rescue ourselves from. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one genuinely righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Proverbs 20 says, who could honestly say, I've kept my heart pure. I'm clean. I'm without sin. All have gone astray, Psalm 14.3 says. Everybody is corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not one. Biblical faith also confesses that sin is inherent to the human condition. We don't come into a sinful world as blank slate beings who, if the external situations were to line up correctly, could overcome our sinful predisposition. We come with a bent towards evil. The evil, the betrayal of the good, comes much more naturally to us than its advancement. And again, you can just test this on yourself. You can simply say, uh, what would be the maximum level of good that I could advance in just one relationship over the 12 days of Christmas? Just pick one person. Forget about the rest of them. Just one. Watch how difficult it is to sustain that momentum of outpouring generosity and love and grace. Watch how quickly you will come to rationalize and justify taking your foot off the gas pedal and saying, well, that, that's good enough. Like, that's more love and appreciation that they've gotten over the last year. So like, they have nothing to complain about. I lasted three days, that was pretty good. And again, notice something. In almost every way that the Bible talks about sin, it's emphasizing that it's a sin before God. That's what makes something a sin. It's not that the Bible ignores the horizontal direction of how our sins 
hurt and damage other people in the communities that we're a part of. They clearly do, right? When you murder, that has tangible, immediate, um, concentric circles of damaging, heartbreaking um, consequences. But what the Bible says is what, what makes that, the foundation of what makes that sinful is that God created that person and God has the right to take away life, but you do not. And so you are playing God in that situation when you take life. And that doesn't, that doesn't minimize the fact that you have committed that kind of a sin. It actually deepens it because it's not just the horizontal level of, well, how do my actions impact other people? It's how do they impact um, my relationship and my connection to God? The horizontal dimension is never minimized in scripture, but it's always the vertical dimension of sin that actually provides the umph to call something a sin. God said, this is what it means to hit the mark. And when we don't, it's God who can say, you've missed the mark. And that's why a biblical understanding of sin underscores the effects of our that sin has on our relationship with God as a foundational priority and only secondarily addresses its effects on other people. And what are those effects? What are those consequences? The consequences of sin are alienation from God, removal from the blessing and uh, protection and presence that God intends to live with us inside of. We are alienated from God. We are alienated from our true humanity. We are alienated from right relationship with each other. We're alienated from our sense of vocation in the world. But the central alienation is of a spiritual nature in connection to the author of life. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's just a shorthand where all of sin leads is death. Obviously physical, but it also means relational death, psychological death, emotional death, um, death at every level. And sometimes those levels and that death spiral doesn't play out neatly or uniformly or at the same time. But the Bible says that where everything moves towards is death. And then it attaches certain words to that death depending on which dimension of death we're talking about. So that death comes with bondage, it comes with guilt, it comes with shame, it comes with ultimately judgment. The wages of sin is death. And because God is holy, which is a hard word for us to wrap our heads and hearts around, especially if we're not really steeped in scriptural language, because just like sin, the only time that holy is used is like holy smokes or a worse explicitive. So our culture doesn't really have a handle on what it means to be holy, which is to be um, so distinct in beauty as to be kind of without a category. But God is even, even really referred to ultimately as holy in Scripture. In Isaiah 6, he's referred to holy, holy, holy. It's a triplicate emphasis. He's so holy that even if he had another, if you could conceive of another holy being, God would be at a different measure of the full manifestation of goodness, beauty, love, and light. It's like a burning, it's like the sun. The sun is hot, 
But the closer you get to the sun, it's not like, ooh, that's warming up. It's like, that's hot, hot, hot. Like dangerous hot. You can't actually get, there's, there's a limit to how close you can get to the sun before you're destroyed by its power, by the purity of what it is. And it's like that with God. God's love, God's essence is so holy, holy, holy and so wholly good and wholly just and wholly right that he cannot abide sin. God can't participate in sin. He can't leave sin unpunished. Because of what sin is, because of what it does to his creation, because of what it does to his image bearers, he can't just say, it's not a big deal. God can't be casual with sin. We can, because we aren't fiery hot love, the purest holy love, but God is. And therefore, he can't turn a blind eye towards sin. Because someone who lives in sin, and that doesn't mean that you're sinning all the time. It just means that your basic posture is one of rejection or ignoring God or living your own way, any of those disobedience. It's just that's your general posture. You're living life at least sidelining God and saying, thanks, but no thanks, I'll do things on my own. Living in sin has nurtured a kind of existence that can't be reconciled with God and his purposes for you. And it nurtures a kind of existence that God, if he is good and holy and is the ultimate in beauty and love and goodness, can't simply permit that to continue forever. And so separation from God, this is what we see in the Adam and Eve story. When Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, God removes them from his presence. Not from completely his care and love, but his but full communion with God is no longer possible. And that means our time on earth outside of redemption is experienced as time where we live with a fundamental sense of disconnection at the heart of who we are. And we try and fill that in different ways and we try and explain it away sociologically and psychologically, but the Bible says it's actually spiritual theological rupture in our communion with God. And our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in God. And so it's separation here and now is the consequence of our sins. And it's separation forever if we die in our sins, if we die in that posture of I have no interest in following or submitting to God. After death comes judgment. And that judgment, eternal death, hell, there's different languages for it. Again, different pictures. But that is the natural consequence of a life lived in defiance of God, in refusal to listen to God, submit to him, and live according to his agenda. So what's the solution? How do you kind of fix this quagmire? Well, the Bible makes it really clear that we can't reform ourselves. You're not just going to be able to say, yep, starting today, God, yep, I'm just going to Pull myself, up, pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and I'm going to start going to church, read my Bible, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to start like dealing with these particular sins and really be ruthless with myself and I'm going to clean myself up spiritually. You might think that's noble. The Bible calls that foolhardy because you're not going to be able to do it. Maybe with particular sins you might be able to manage them. 
may be able to, to um, um, localize and quarantine certain behaviors or certain thoughts. You'll be able to discipline yourself. You'll be able to use tips and tricks of behavior or thought motivation to make certain sins less, uh, have less of a hold on you, but you won't be able to deal with sin. This interior corrupting power because that has to have a supernatural solution. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes in Romans 6, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The solution to both the power of sin in our lives and the penalty that sin um, condemns us to is perfect love. A perfect love that absolutely burns white hot against sin and sins, but burns mysteriously even more fiercely for those who are caught in sin's power and under condemnation. The solution is a love that comes as a human being to bear judgment against the sin that humanity deserves and does it as a once and for all sacrifice so that God can reveal himself to be completely and perfectly just. He will not allow sin to just have its way and just kind of be like, well, whatever. We'll just kind of minimize it. We'll ignore it. We'll sweep it under the rug. He won't sweep it under the rug. He'll deal with it. But he'll deal with it in himself so that those under sin's power and corruption can find freedom and be delivered from condemnation to blessing and inheritance. When the angel says you are to name him Jesus, let's remember this Christmas season what that name means. Yahweh saves. God saves. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, from sin's power, from sin's penalty, eternal death. And that's good news. That is the gospel. That Jesus came to secure a victory over sin and over evil and over darkness that you would never be able to secure left to your own devices. And see, Jesus doesn't just come to offer forgiveness for sins. That is true, but that is only a dimension of his ministry. He saves his people from their sins, not just because he offers them forgiveness for sins, but he can actually deliver his people from sin itself. He can actually lead you from the Egyptian-like bondage to sin's power where you are enslaved and despite your best intentions, you cannot move forward into the life God has called you to. He can, by his Holy Spirit, instead of a sinful spirit that already resides in you, by his Holy Spirit, he can deliver you into a new kind of life by forgiving you your sins, saying, go and leave your life of sin. And then he says, come and follow me. See, the good news isn't just that Jesus, that in Jesus we can have our sins forgiven. It's that we can be freed from sin itself. We no longer have to walk in sin and under sin's power. And as we learn to participate with God and nurture our connection with God and develop communion with God as we allow his love and grace to transform our hearts, we move into greater and greater expressions of freedom. 
but it's a strange kind of freedom because it's not the freedom that we think we would want, which is I get to just live life on my own terms. I'm free, right? Frozen, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, let it go. No, God doesn't let us go. He binds us to himself. We become slaves and there are new rules. There are new expectations, but it's because you've been delivered from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. You were once a sinner held under the power of sin and hopeless, and now you have become a child of God. Not because you started going to church, you got religion, you started reading your Bible, you started giving to the church, whatever, whatever um, spiritual uh, boxes you feel like need to be sort of ticked in order to s- kind of stand in your own righteousness and say, yeah, that, that's good. Now I'm on the right path now. But because the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came for you, died for you, lived for you a perfect righteousness, died for you, and was resurrected to call you into a new kind of life that can start right now as we submit to him, but it extends on forever. Because once you genuinely turn your life over to Jesus, the Bible says it's no longer, um, you should no longer think of yourselves as living in sin. You now live in Christ. Your ontological status has changed. Even if you don't perceive it, you are now in Christ. And as the Holy Spirit works in you, you will find both sin and particular sins Not that you won't commit sins anymore, but you will find them increasingly unattractive. And you will want to grow in grace and love and truth and the beautiness of God because you will see God for who he is. And increasingly, you will see who you are called to be. And you will have access to a power and a hope and a grace that allows you to actually build forward momentum in your life in pursuing what God has for you. Because of Christmas, you can have a new status as a child of God with a new spirit-filled power, what Jesus called abundant life or eternal life, and it's all because of grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to justify it through your own behavior. You can simply receive it. But in order to receive it, you have to turn away from a posture towards God and life that says, I'm going to live outside of who you are and what you want for me. It can only be received as you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness, but I want more than your forgiveness. I want your life starting right now and moving into the future. That is the gift of Christmas. May it grip your heart in a fresh way this year. God, as we continue in worship, May we celebrate the name Jesus. May our understanding that we can be saved and delivered from our sins melt our heart in a fresh and powerful way. And may it animate us into the Christmas season in a way that brings light and love and grace to places of darkness and hopelessness and despair. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and ask this. Amen.